Next, this month's special series focus on disaster medicine and preparedness. Unforeseen disasters carry unique challenges and learning opportunities. This month, we present conversations that scrutinize our plans and protocols and ask, how prepared are we? How will we react? You're a medicine-slash-pediatric resident when the storm of the century hits. You're trapped for six days with no power, no food, no water. How do you survive? How do your patients survive? And what can we learn about it in case it happens to us? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, your host, and with us today is Dr. Kristen Dascom from the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Utah, who lived through and worked through Hurricane Katrina. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you for having me. All right, Hurricane Katrina, it hits. How long did the actual storm last? The winds and the rain lasted overnight and into the morning the next day. We took a walk around the facility probably around 10 or 11 the next morning just to assess the damage. And uh, there was probably about maybe a foot of water around the hospital. You could certainly see the damage to the roof from our windows uh, to the Superdome. So we knew that persons in there were probably having a hard time. Probably over the next few hours, we started realizing that the water lines on the houses around us were getting higher. And so I actually took a couple of photographs while I was there trying to figure out if that was actually true, and it was. That was very demoralizing, realizing that the rain had stopped, but the water was still rising. Did you know at that point about the levees breaking? We had a crank radio with us, which was invaluable and also very saddening because we did get some reports of the levees breaking, but most of the reports we could get were people calling into the radio stations with heartbreaking stories of, I'm on the corner of X and Y streets, my house is over flooding, I need someone to come and help me, but there's no one out here. And in the middle of the storm, no one could get to these people because the emergency vehicles couldn't get out there. Um, so we would turn it off periodically just because it was so heart-wrenching, we couldn't do anything. So there was a limitation of information on that end, and there was some information coming in. So it was intermittent that we got our information. How high did the water eventually go around your hospital? It was deep enough that we had to evacuate our persons by boat. I would guess it was probably a good two feet, perhaps, certainly waist high in places. Our ER on-ramp actually became a boat-loading dock, and that was where our first patients were evacuated, probably on day three or so. The wildlife and fisheries persons were the first people to come out. And actually, some orthopedics residents got a small boat from one of their homes and started getting some of our patients out. While you were getting patients out, where were they going to? From what I understood, they were going to a small landing underneath one of the overpasses for one of the highways. That was being taken care of by a physician. We don't even really know. But from there, it was dry land. They could actually have ambulances and whatnot take the patients out to um, other safe havens, including Houston, Baton Rouge, Lafayette, other places where they could actually be taken well, care of. Well, were you of. getting other new patients in, people who needed medical help? All night long. Uh, the Internal Medicine Service, I know, admitted uh, probably 15 patients, maybe more. My recollection isn't as good now. The pediatrics residents admitted certainly five, mostly trauma. One patient was a young girl who was chronically on a ventilator, and the parents were concerned that the ventilator might lose power because their house had already lost power. So she was admitted as well. Certainly a lot of trauma. Uh, one young lady had had a seizure and had neck pain and trauma after that as well. So we were admitting the whole night 
we also ended up having some women having babies during that hospitalization. And this is without lights. This is without lights. We had gel sand. One pregnant woman was having trouble with labor, and she was not dilating enough. And so she was pushing against a closed cervix. And so they were estimating they would probably have to go in for a C-section, an emergent C-section. And it was approximately a 32-week baby, I should say. So it was an NICU baby. Uh, So we had an emergent issue that we had to deal with probably on day five when we all felt our worst, (laughs) but we still had to act appropriately. Was there power in the operating room? There was minimal light. There was power for instrumentation minimally. I remember them having bovies. I remember having to hold a flashlight for the anesthesiologist to insert an epidural needle, so there wasn't all that much. There were at least five people holding flashlights during the operation to support the surgeons. And there was some power for suction and oxygen for the baby afterwards. Did you ever find any of these times when the staff was stretched just so thin? I mean, you can only deliver so many babies and have so many people on respirators. Did you ever feel like, oh my God, you know, there's just not enough people here? Yeah, definitely. We all had our moments of being exhausted. We did have two shifts worth of nurses, but even that sort of blended with 100 degrees. So our normal scrubs and starched white shirts turned into cutoffs and tank tops as quickly as we could just to maintain our own body temperatures. From there, we became tired, fatigued, and only became more wrung out. But we did what we could. We all knew we had to be there. We were probably safer there than we were in other portions of the city at the time. And we know we had a job to do. And so it was actually one of the ways that We coped with the situation. We focused on our job as opposed to focusing on the devastating situation around us. Kristen, did you ever have a moment when you just said to yourself, what the hell did I do staying here? Get out, you know, or walk away or run away. Well, and it's interesting. During the storm, many of our patients' families and many of the people who had just come in for shelter from the storm were leaving by boats that random people would drive up to our ER landing and say, come on, if you want to get out of here, we'll take you to the convention center. And we had intermittent phone signals if you still had battery power to your cellular phone, mostly at night. And so at one point, my mom called my cell phone and said, Kristen, if anyone in a boat comes up and they have a gun and they tell you that they're friends with so-and-so, get on the boat and don't look back. (laughs) And I thought, wow, wonderful, someone's looking out for me. But at the same time, I knew it was not only dangerous, but also impossible. We all had to be there, and none of us ever took that option. Well, I know it's not a funny situation, but I've been to New Orleans. I've been to the convention center. They have really lousy food there. I would have stayed in the hospital. (laughs) I don't know. If you'd seen what we were eating. (laughs) If you'd seen what they eat at the convention center, I've been there for meetings. (laughs) All right. So did you feel safe? Was there civil unrest? Were you worried about, I mean, quite frankly, I would be concerned about people looting and coming to the hospital for drugs? Absolutely. And we had rumors of Children's Hospital, Toro Infirmary, and several other hospitals already being looted for drugs. Our pharmacy actually was in the basement, and that flooded on the first day. So that had been moved to our fourth floor, actually where we had our morning reports every day. And so we knew that that was reasonably protected, and no one was really coming for that reason. We did, however, suffer from a lack of communication such that most of our information, if it didn't come from the radio, it came from rumor from people walking back and forth from floors saying, did you hear this or did you hear that? And there were rumors of nurses being attacked on one floor by passersby or people being raped in the hallways or family members having problems with patients that 
doctors had done malpractice. And so we were hearing all these rumors. We couldn't substantiate anything. And so your own personal safety as well as the safety of your patients was always felt to be compromised. You always felt paranoid. You always felt nervous. You felt anxious for your own home, knowing what was going on in the city at the time. So there was never a feeling of safety. And certainly that's one of the basic fundamental needs of anyone who's going to do a higher performing job. Did you discuss this with the guys who are in charge and talk about it? We did, certainly. And that was actually the first question I brought up at the meeting at the midpoint of our stay. But the issue is there's only so many security personnel that they can keep during a storm like this. And they were overwhelmed, too. They had only enough for a couple of shifts. They'd been working just as hard as we had, if not harder. They helped us lift patients up and down floors. They helped us with our own personal security. So they were exhausted. So we had to help ourselves. And that's what we did. Did you find that under a situation like this, people's best really comes out or their worst comes out? That's an interesting question. I think the people I was around, their best came out. Uh, I'm not going to say that's true for everyone because everyone has their own reaction. And I think reflecting on what happened in the, in the city as a whole, I think we all know that not everyone's best came out. But I would say amongst our group, we all did what we had to do and we're happy to do it. So here's a question on an emotional or a spiritual level. What did you learn about yourself from this? I learned that I'm a lot stronger under situations of crisis than I thought I would be. Uh, I've always had the luxury of having my parents close by, close family. This was a big separation from them, from the city that I'd grown up in. And so I, I definitely think I learned a little bit more strength in myself as well as a bit of ingenuity. We had to learn how to count molecules of sodium going into a fluid bag so that we knew that our patients were getting it right. I've never done that before, but I learned how to do it then. And you learn how imaginative you can be in a situation. It's very interesting. Did you worry a lot about messing up in the situation? Because all your tools are gone. Suddenly you've got to use all these new tools and use your own intellect and your own intuition. Oh, I think that's the first thing you worry about. And you're constantly talking with other doctors and other respiratory therapists to make sure what you're thinking is correct. And because we don't have computers to confirm our suspicions and look up information when we don't know it. But at the same time, you do what you can. And we were lucky that we had some textbooks available and our nursing staff had the wherewithal to show us how to do a manual drip and figure calculate the ions of each molecule, and, and we, we did it. Our patients did well. See, it's good to be a dinosaur. All <laughs> right, if this ever happens to any of us, and heaven forbid it should, do you have any words of wisdom or suggestions that you've learned that you can teach us? My first suggestion would be not to depend on the hospital itself to support your personal needs. I was one, along with many of my colleagues, that brought our own water, our own food, and our own supplies for what we presume to be maybe a two or three day stay, which ended up being a lot longer. But I think that knowing that I had a lot of extra water, a lot of extra fluid in, in the form of soup and whatnot, knowing that, I knew I had more time to help and more time to stay safe than others who were dependent on our two 16-ounce bottles of water a day that we knew were limited. Gee, you know, this theme has come up before in, in many other shows. As a doctor or a person in the helping professions, you have to take care of yourself first so you're free to take care of others. It's interesting that it showed up here. Absolutely. That 
one of the biggest things that we did for ourselves. And we brought not only things that would keep us healthy, like soup, which has a fluid as well as some little protein, but also some fun stuff that sort of gave us something to look forward to. M&M's? <laughs> well, when, the, when the power went out, the ice cream all melted, so we got to have a root beer float party <laughs> one day. In those few moments where we had a little time and a little moment to ourselves, it was nice to have a very silly, uneventful laugh. And so that was important to us, too. One of the nicest things we remember, actually. Thanks for being our guest today, Kristen. And I hope we never have to talk to you or anybody else on a similar subject. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable. ReachMD XM is here for you, the health professionals who care for your patients. Tell us what you want and what you need. Send your email to xm at reachmd.com. We truly value your questions, and we thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Disaster Medicine and Preparedness. For a program guide and complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com and download ReachMD's new iPhone application, Medical Radio. Listen to the same live stream of ReachMD medical news and information you enjoy on XM160. Plus, CME and thousands of searchable podcasts. Download the Medical Radio app today.